We're going to be in Genesis chapter 39 tonight. If you'd like to turn to that in your Bible, or if you're like a lot of people, you can find it on your Bible app on your phone. We are in part three tonight of our series on the life of Joseph. And last week, we talked about Joseph being betrayed by his brothers and all the things that happened there. Then that's in Genesis 37. Genesis 38 does a little detour. It talks about Judah and some events in his life and his family. Because if you remember, uh, this section of Genesis is really about the descendants of Jacob. Well, Judah, Judah is also one of those. So most of it is going to be is talking about Joseph. But So then we go, go back into chapter 39, and we're going to be talking about that tonight. And as we look at this temptation and injustice are, are two huge themes in Genesis chapter 39 and, and really in Joseph's life in general. And we're going to see Joseph face temptation tonight. But before we look at the, his temptation, we need to see exactly what has been happening to Joseph since we left him last week among a band of Midianites on a slow moving caravan to, to Egypt. Now we know from last week that Jacob had accepted the fact that he, in his mind, the he, he believed that his son Joseph was dead. And his brothers believed that he was gone for good and that perhaps he was even dead by now. After all, I mean, they didn't expect him to be that much of a survivor. But in reality, the truth is, we all know, because we've read the end of the story, that Joseph was very much alive. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, this is what it says. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So think, try if you can to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Joseph found himself in a country and in a a culture he didn't know. He was surrounded by a language he didn't understand. So this once longed-for child of Rachel, Rachel and the Uh, openly favored son of Jacob had been sold as a common slave and forced into a situation that seemed even worse than the pit into which his brothers had initially thrown him. Joseph was placed on the auction block and he was sold like cattle. Uh, We don't know what indignities uh, he he suffered during this process. I, I can't even begin to imagine the confusion that swirled in his mind as he heard words spoken that he didn't understand, uh, how, I mean, just how awful, how, how inhumane, how de- demeaning to be sold like this. Well, blessedly, and this is a strange way to put it, but, but blessedly for Joseph, he's bought by an individual named Potiphar to become a slave in Potiphar's household. And I say that because many slaves were bought to put out on manual labor in different ways. And so for him, it was if you're going to be a slave, it's better to be a slave in a household. And so as we're introduced to his circumstances in Egypt, I want you to notice that there are two things that are conspicuous by their absence. First of all, and this we don't often think of this, but there is no mention of time here in this, in this first part of chapter 39. We have no indication of how long Joseph has been in Potiphar's house when these events begin to unfold. He could have been there for two years or he could have been there for two months. We don't know. We just know that a certain amount of time went by so that so that Joseph could rise in prominence there. Second thing 
is that nothing is said about the adjustments that Joseph had to make. Remember, he had come from a a rural uh, culture, an unsophisticated people. He had come from a home where he had been the pride and joy of his mother and the favorite child of a doting, aging father. And without warning, he was... He was grabbed roughly by his brothers. He was stripped of his beautiful robe. He was dumped in a deep, dirty pit. And then he was rescued from that situation only to be sold to hardened slave traders and taken overland by a caravan to a distant land where he was set on the block and sold like a cheap piece of merchandise. All I know is that dealing with that, the changes and the adjustments that he faced must have been phenomenal just to deal with it. And as we said, Joseph was uh, uh, sold to a man named Potiphar, who is described as the captain of the guard, or the NASB translates it as captain of the bodyguard. Uh, And this group was uh, an elite, courageous band of rugged men. The Jewish historian Alfred Edersheim describes that group by telling us that Potiphar was the chief of the executioners. And as I said last week, uh, I mentioned it in passing, you may remember, but the literal translation of the phrase, captain of the guard, the literal translation is chief butcher. So no matter what title you give him, Potiphar was just, he was nobody to fool around with. He he, he was a man of of, of seasoned military experience with power over life and death. Yet Joseph we, we talked, I mentioned how many adjustments he must have made, but he not only adjusted to his new situation, but he flourished in it. And, and for one major reason, reason, and that reason emerges in a beautiful phrase that appears a number of times in Joseph's story. I want you to see if you can spot it. I'll give you a really good hint. It's the first five words of the next verse. Here's what it says. The Lord was with Joseph. There's the key. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, which is a great indicator there of how When God is blessing you, the blessing overflows on the people around you. But it says, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, the thing about that is, and you'll see that phrase several times in the story of Joseph. But the the thing about the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph. where it occurs here particularly, that seems like an odd thing to say. How should we understand the phrase, the Lord is with him, when we look at him and we see that he was in the middle of these undesirable circumstances? How can we reconcile that it says the Lord was with him and yet he was a slave? Joseph was part of her slave. He had no rights and the future was decidedly bleak. He had no future really. And and yet we are emphatically told that the Lord was with him. Well, we are to see, and of course we have the benefit of reading the end of the story. Joseph didn't know the end of the story, but we have the benefit of seeing that. And so In that, we are able to see the providence of God behind everything that's happening to Joseph. 
the, the sovereign God of Israel was intimately involved in Joseph's, Joseph's life. He was guiding him. He, he, it was the Lord who gave him the facility in the Egyptian language, helped him pick that up. And on top of that, he gave him favor in the eyes of Potiphar. Clearly, there's no question that God was the secret of Joseph's success. It wasn't that he was gifted and talented and that he worked hard. I'm sure all of those things are true. And luck had nothing to do with it. It was that God was on his side. And I think for us, you know, we have to recognize God's providence in our own lives as well, because I think we've all been there. There are times when we may find ourselves so weak and, and so alone and things just aren't going right. Things aren't going smoothly. And, and we can easily imagine in that moment that the Lord has left us, but it's just not so. God may well be invisible to us in the dark circumstances of life. Darkness, the, the, the direct inability to perceive him close by, does not change the fact of his close proximity to us when life is hard. Just because we can't see him or feel him does not change the reality that he's there. In, in his book, Let Me Tell You a Story, Tony Campolo uh, recounts how he, when he was a small child living in the city, his mother paid a neighborhood girl to escort Tony to and from school every day when he was just a very small child. And when, when Tony grew a little bit older, he didn't want, like that treatment. And so he convinced his mother to pay him uh, to walk himself back and forth and save the money for the household. And so it happened. She agreed. And every day, Every school day he walked to school and every day he walked home with no problem. I mean, he was, he was a big boy and he was so independent. He felt so, so great about that. But years later, after his mother's death, he learned the truth that she actually shadowed him so that no harm would come to him. But she, she stayed, stayed enough out of sight that he never caught on. He had no idea she was there and she was watching over him. He did not know she was there. Uh, and he never saw her, but she was present. And she was watching over him. And I think that's the way it is for us in those hard times, in those dark times when we can't see, when we don't uh, feel his presence what, or whatever. We know that he is with us and he's watching over us. And we read that the Lord was with, with, was with Joseph. And honestly, that is the most critical and salient point in this whole narrative before us. Joseph's life circumstances have been completely upended. I mean, he's lost his social position. He's lost his freedom. Yet Joseph has not lost his excellent character, his integrity, and his work ethic. More importantly, although his circumstances had reversed, God's love and favor had not changed. And I think there's a lesson there for us. We need to understand when we think about circumstances, circumstances are a lot like our, our emotions. They'll lie to us. Circumstances do not necessarily show God's favor or disfavor for believers. Uh, just because things are going great doesn't mean that God, you're under God's favor. And just because things may be going badly does not mean that you're, you're out of favor with God. The, the tendency for us is to look at circumstances in the immediate and short term to see merely what's in front of, in front of us. We don't see the big picture, but but the problem is, is that a proper perspective on any life is really the, to, the totality of that life. The full and complete parade of events from beginning to end that shows God's dealings in the life of an individual. And I think you can see the real problem with that. And that is that 
I cannot, even at this point in my life, as you know, at, at my age, I still cannot see my entire life beginning to end to see how God's at work in my life. It's really impossible for us to get the full perspective. It, but so, so it comes down to a matter of trust to realize that, that God is, is with me, that God's at work in my circumstances, that He's doing something, that He's, he's preparing me for something, He's getting something done in my life, or He's using those circumstances to touch somebody else's life. But I have to trust Him in that because it's impossible for me to be able to look at my whole life and be able to see, okay, this I see the hand of God now in this. But, but one point that will be made abundantly clear in the life of Joseph is that God is the ruler of circumstances. He is their master, and He engineers them for His purposes. And, and here's the truth. Everybody here instinctively knows this. Our circumstances can change in the blink of an eye. And we know this instinctively, but, but we will we'll see very clearly in the life of Joseph how, how, how a, a, at sunrise on one day, he was a dirty, bedraggled prisoner in an Egyptian jail. And then by nightfall, he would be well-groomed, immaculately clothed, and the most powerful appointed official in the entire known world. You talk about a sudden change of circumstances. We have to remember these truths that we see here in Joseph. Circumstances are merely tools in the, in the hand of God that He uses to shape our lives. And God uses both what we humanly call good circumstances as well as bad circumstances to develop maturity in our lives, to form us and to shape us. And He's making us into the type of people that He wishes us to be, and He's doing it all for His glory. So circumstances are, are merely extensions of God's providence and direction so, when circumstances are not humanly what we would desire, anybody ever had circumstances that you preferred were something different? Yeah, everybody has. When that happens, as I mentioned, we are still called to trust. And we're called to trust that we are where we're supposed to be because God's in control. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, he didn't say for all circumstances, but give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Think about this. We can only give thanks in all things when we trust that God is in all things. In fact, the truth is we can trust that God is in all things, even the painful and difficult circumstances. Trusting God is in hard circumstances is, the, is the, really the thrust and the focus of the latter part of Romans chapter 8. Paul wrote this, one of, one of, uh, one of the most beloved passages of Scripture. Is, he wrote this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whether we are in difficult circumstances because of our own actions, that ever, anybody ever been in a tough spot because of your own actions? Yeah. Or if you're there because the Lord led you into that place, and you can read all through, through Scripture where God took His people to a situation that was very difficult. Or if you're there because some person committed some sort of evil, hurtful act against you. It doesn't matter how you got into those circumstances. We know nothing can separate us from Him. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We know that God will be with us through all of it. Regardless. So God does not always deliver us from the difficult circumstances. But he always goes through them with us. Even those difficult moments. We know that in the end, God's, God will, will prevail in our lives. And we know that in the end, his plan will be carried out in and through us. But there's a big gift to that if we respond to our circumstances with trust. You know, surely Joseph had days, and maybe it was worse at nighttime, when, when he just maybe would lay, lie in bed at night and, and just wonder, why? Why? I mean, his desire had always been just to be with his father and with his younger brother Benjamin, to live a normal life. I mean, what about his dreams? Were, how would they ever come about now? But, but, but even if, he, if those questions and doubts flooded his mind from time to time, one thing about him is that we never read about a poor attitude with Joseph. There's no resentment mentioned. There's no hint of self-pity. And therefore, there's no bitterness. He trusts in God. And although his words may have been different, Surely what was in his heart was the same as what the Lord Jesus prayed centuries later when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The Lord was with Joseph. But you know what? There's something even, I think, even, even a step beyond that there because Joseph didn't, while he knew the Lord was with him, Joseph didn't have to tell Potiphar that the Lord was with him. We're told that Potiphar could see it for himself. Verse 3, it said, now his master saw that the Lord was with him. So this high-powered military man entrusted with the security of Pharaoh saw something about Joseph that marked him out, that set him aside from all of the other people in his household. And that's very, very impressive already, but, but it's really amazing when you consider Joseph's age because even if he had been there a couple of years, he's still only 19 years old. He's a very young individual, and that's a very rare thing to see that in a young person. But you know what? I covet that, don't you? That, that people around us can see that we're different, that the Lord is with us, and then, then they want to know why. And I read about a doctor who had given his life to Christian work. He, he came from a wealthy Jewish background and was building a promising career. And among his medical team was a nurse who was always cheerful, whatever the pressure. She never lost her temper, never swore. She was constantly supportive. She was 
so different from the other medical staff that he had to deal with. Not that, not that any of them were, were inadequate by any, any means, but there was just something about the nurse that intrigued him. And one day, he, he just couldn't take it anymore, and he just said, what is so different about you? Well, you know what? She replied with a single word, Jesus. Well, that made such an impression on him that he surreptitious, surreptitiously purchased a Bible, and he began to read it to find about, out about this Jesus who meant so much to this nurse. And then through reading it, he became a believer in Jesus. And he subsequently lost his family and was rejected by them. Nevertheless, his faith grew and he devoted his life to bringing health care and the Christian message to people far away from his original, original home. You know what? That nurse was like Joseph. There was something about her that set her apart. That people, this doctor was able to look at her and say, there's something different there. And that's what it was with Joseph. Potiphar could look at him and say, you know what? I have a lot of fine people in my household. I've got other slaves, but there's something different about this guy. And, and you know what? It's highly likely that Joseph did the, the same thing that this nurse did with a doctor because the doctor said, hey, what's different about you? Maybe they had the same conversation. And Joseph told Potiphar, about the, the Lord, about the God of Israel, when he asked a similar, similar question. That, doubtless they had many an intelligent conversation as Joseph learned the language and the customs of Egypt. What, what Potiphar sees, though, generates trust and confidence in Joseph. And in the end, Joseph is made the chief administrator or the steward of Potiphar's house. And Genesis tells us that God, as a result of that, God blessed Potiphar in house and field. So, although a slave, Joseph prospered. He prospered, which is a very strange thing to think when you, when you put the word slave and prosper together. But here, here's uh, uh, something I read, I think it's significant. With, with greater success comes greater measures of trust, which then lead to greater times of unguarded vulnerability. F.B. Meyer writes, we may expect temptation in the days of prosperity, prosperity and ease rather than in those of privation and toil. Not when youth is climbing arduously the steep ladder of fame, but when he has entered the golden portals. Not when men frown, but where they smile sweet, ex exquisite smiles of flattery. It is there, it is there that the temptress lies in wait. Beware. Powerful. Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish essayist, was right when he said, Adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred who will, that, that will stand adversity. See, the, the, the temptations that accompany prosperity, and this is really important for us to get in a nation that is so prosperous, the temptations that accompany prosperity are far greater and, by the way, also far subtler than those that accompany adversity. And Joseph was certainly prospering. Potiphar had, he left everything in his charge. In fact, at one point in time, we'll, we'll read it. I won't bring it to your attention then. But uh, when he's replying to Potiphar's wife, he said, he is not greater than me in this household. In other words, Potiphar had put him, he had trusted him so much that he said to him, listen, Whatever you say goes. You don't need my permission about anything anymore. And so he is definitely prospering. He, 
he, he, and, and, and Potiphar trusted. I mean, you, that's trust to say, you don't even need to check with me. You're, you're on the same level as I am. Just do what you, what you need to do. And, and I'm good with that. So here was a slave who had earned the right to be respected and trusted. And as a result, Potiphar turned everything over to him. And I, I take that to mean that Joseph determined his own schedule, that he did what he needed to do when he needed to do it, that he wasn't uh, supervised closely, uh, that, that he organized all of Potiphar's estate, that he probably administered all of Potiphar's finances because it says Potiphar placed everything in Joseph's hands other than Potiphar got to decide what he was going to eat. That's in essence what it says. But remember, with greater success comes greater measures of trust which lead in inevitably to greater times of vulnerability. And, and the Spirit of God, who hovered over the writing of the biblical text, led to the selecting of words wisely and accurately chosen. And, and so that leads us to Genesis 39.6, because it closes with a somewhat surprising yet significant sentence. Because it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In other words, he was well-built and he was a handsome man. Now, there's nothing wrong with being physically well-built or handsome. I, <laughs> I can't say that I've ever experienced that. But, but, uh, but, but, but with those attributes come unique temptations. Because listen, here was a house servant who had it, had it made. He was set. He, he wasn't going to have to worry about, about anything in his future. He, he would still be a slave, but he didn't have to worry about things. He had his own private quarters, I'm sure. He had access to very confidential information, and he had the complete trust of his master. Uh, and, and then on top of that, not only was he really good at all this stuff, and God was blessing in all these things, he was one of those guys that, you know, you look at and you say, man, He's so awesome. I hate him. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, he had everything because on top of that, he was a good looking man who without interest in doing so, he caught the eye of, of women. Not surprisingly, it was on those physical attributes that the enemy of Joseph's soul, the tempter concentrated and the scriptures waste no word, no words whatsoever, nor did Potiphar's wife. Cause look at verse seven. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. I mean, that's what I call the direct approach. You know, For, from the text, we know that Joseph has done nothing wrong. There is no evidence that he had flirted with this woman or otherwise invited her intentions. He had not, as we would say today, he had not led her on. Potiphar's wife was the, had been the initiator in all of this. And Potiphar's wife saw this young man. She saw that he was attractive and she began to lust for him. And, and Potiphar's wife was brazenly and shamelessly aggressive. Come to bed with me. Let's have sex. Just straight out. Now, now most others, both then and now, would have been caught off guard and, and maybe at least felt momentarily flattered by such a seductive statement, but not Joseph, not even for a moment. Without hesitation and being absolutely secure in himself and in his God, Joseph responded with equal boldness. Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, 
Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. That's the line I was talking about earlier that tells you that Joseph, he gave Joseph free reign in running the household. Nor has he, has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He refused. Joseph refused. And if you forget everything else I've said, don't forget those two wonderful words. If you're sitting there thinking that Joseph was some kind of spiritual giant, then just put that out of your mind. If you're, thinking, if you're sitting there thinking that some supernatural cloud of protection held him in check, you need to forget that. Just look at the evidence. Here was an Egyptian woman offering her body to a young Jewish servant being tempted by her bold advances. And so, what was his response? He refused. He said no. He, he resisted her alluring words. He stared her down, determined not to yield. Now, that, that's, that's significant because, now we have no idea whether she was beautiful or not. We're not told that. But, she was a person of power. She had power over him and, and to refuse her took significant courage. Joseph, after all, was a slave. She was the mistress of the house. Why did he refuse her? How could he do that? Well, two reasons. First was loyalty to his master. He considered it an affront to his master who had entrusted him with all, with the matters, all the matters, all, the, all of his household. And he said, he said to this woman, my master, trust me. He has given me responsibility for everything he owns. The only thing that is not mine is you, his wife. I could never betray his trust like that. And the second reason, even more important, was his loyalty to God. He said, how could I do this great evil and sin against Potiphar? No. And sin against God. I want you to think about this. Who established what is good and what is evil? God did. God himself. So to commit this act of adultery would be an offense against God. This is something that we, that we uh, it's so important for us to get and so, for, for, so important for us to remember. And that is any act of sin, even when it's committed directly against another human being, any act of sin is first and foremost a sin against God because he is the one who has declared what is good and evil. Therefore, when I sin, it is a blatant act of rebellion toward God because he said this is evil and I do it anyway. David recognized this. You remember uh, after committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband to cover up the pregnancy that resulted from his sin, he eventually repented after being confronted by the prophet Nathan. Well, he wrote Psalm 51 as a prayer of repentance in response. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 51.4, and he actually said this uh, when, at, when Nathan confronted him as well. But he wrote this, Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Wait a minute. Didn't he sin against Uriah? I mean, didn't he do these things? But David understood. Ultimately, the sin was against God. 
And for Joseph, it was true that having sex with Potiphar's wife would be a sin against Potiphar. But, but what stopped Joseph in his tracks was his reverence for a holy God. He understood the holiness of God and therefore gave him a fear of God. That's one element that I believe is lacking in our nation, in our culture, and often in our churches, that there is no fear of God. And we talk about fear and say, oh, it's just got to have this, this uh, reverence, this holy awe, this, this sort of... Well, there's some truth to that, but, but you know what? There's also something in there about being afraid to sin against Him. You know, like with my parents, when I was growing up, uh, when I did something wrong, I had great respect for them anyway. But when I did something wrong, I was not afraid because I had great awe for them. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know, you know where I'm going with this. I was afraid because I knew they had the power to deal with it. They had the power to uh, apply the uh, board of education to my hind end, shall we say. So, and, and so there was, there was also that element of fear. It wasn't that I was afraid of them, that I couldn't come into their presence at all or anything like that. It was that a, a fear that kept me from doing things that were wrong because I knew they had the authority to punish me. They had the authority to deal with that sin. It's the same thing with God. When I sin against God, I, I, I need to have a holy fear in my life to realize I serve a holy God. And if I sin, I'm, I'm rebelling against him. And therefore, having the fear to realize I don't want to sin and fall into the hands of God. I want to stay on the right side of grace. Well, anyway, sleeping with Potiphar's wife would represent a failure to love God and a failure to love his neighbor. The two things that Jesus said summed up all the law and prophet. So Joseph walked away. And you know, at that moment in time when he walked away, if you were Joseph, you may be thinking to yourself, phew, boy, I'm glad that's over with. I won't have to deal with that again. Well, you'd be wrong. Read on, verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So after Joseph's initial refusal, Potiphar's wife evidently made no attempt whatsoever to modify or to restrain her passions. She would have this young man in her bed. And so she acted upon her desires and pursued Joseph with abandon. Potiphar's wife refused to take no for an answer. Day after day after day after day after day, Joseph faced an onslaught of her advances, a blitzkrieg of temptation. Over and over and over again, she comes attempting to, give, to convince him to become her lover. She was not about to be ignored, so she pressed Joseph day after day after day. This was an evil seductress. She was driven to have sex with Joseph. And, and all his talk about these noble reasons for resisting only intensified her determination. She cared nothing about the sanctity of, of marriage, and she cared nothing about the trust between her husband and this young man. All she wanted, she was interested in gratifying her sensual desires and doing it right now. And, and listen, if you're living in the imaginary bubble that somehow temptation once resisted will vanish, I'm here to burst your bubble right now. As a matter of fact, when you, when you begin to think like that, you actually become an even greater target for the tempter because he knows 
that you'll be more vulnerable because you will drop your guard. Furthermore, it helps to keep in mind that the tempter wants the respected person, the person who is quoted by others, the successful individual, the trusted partner, the godly soul. That's why he goes after pastors and leaders and deacons. And if you have a strong walk of God, he comes after you. And that's why it's not surprising Potiphar's wife went after Joseph with such relentless persistence because he's a catch. Get him and you've really conquered something. And, and Joseph must have had an increasingly difficult time resisting as she kept the pressure up day after day. Because listen, many a, a man has resisted once, but then given in when the pressure persists. And once the embers of lust begin to smolder, then the vivid scene portrayed, portrayed in James 1 goes into action. This is what James wrote. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But listen to this. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. By what? By his own lust. So the, the appeal of sensual lust works like a magnet drawing two forces toward each other. You have the inner desire, that inner lust that's inside of us, and you have the outer bait. And let's face it, you can't escape the bait if you live in the real world. You know, in fact, even if you somehow manage to shut yourself away from the real world, your mind will not let you escape the outer bait. But I want you to remember this, that there is no sin in the bait. The sin is in the bite. When you take a bite of the bait. A lot of uh, short B words there. When the lust of another tempts you to give in to your own lust, so much so that your resistance weakens, you have become enticed and you, you have given in to the lure of temptation. And the secret to the, dealing with this is modeled beautifully by Joseph he refused to weaken. He would not compromise even a, a small amount. He continued to resist. He, he refused to budge. And Potiphar's wife dropped the bait day after day after day. And each time Joseph refused to take it. No, 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 he, he replied. Not, and not only did he not listen to her, it got to where he did not even want to go near her. She was not safe to be around. And that's a big, that's a big lesson for us. If there's an area you struggle with temptation, the best thing you can do is stay away from it. You know, if, if you get saved out of alcoholism, it's probably not a good idea for you to go out and right away and start a bar ministry. Stay away from it. It's what Joseph did. And he rebuffed her time and time again, refusing to yield to her advances. So finally, she set a trap for him. Verse 11. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So Joseph had come into the house to do his work one day and he noticed the house was awfully quiet today. There were no servants around. Now, who knows why? You know, maybe Potiphar's wife had, had uh, sent them on errands. She had sent them to do things and got them out of the way. But whatever the reason, she was alone with Joseph in the house 
and she again made her move, only this time she was not about to take no for an answer. And in desperation, she, she seized his cloak and pulled him to her. And she held on so tightly that when he jerked away from her and dashed out into the street, he left his outer robe in his hands. What, what a beautiful, clear image of practical uh, uh, truth and, and, and what the scripture teaches us with what strong biblical counsel here. You know, whenever the New Testament talks about the subject of sensual temptation, it gives us one command. Run! 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lust. The Bible does not tell us to reason with it. It does not tell us to think about it. It doesn't tell us to claim verses about it. It just says, flee, get away, run. You know what I have discovered in my lifetime? I have discovered that you cannot yield to sensuality if you're running away from it. So, run for your life. Get out of there. If you try to reason with lust, if you try to play, with, uh, play around with sensual thoughts, you will finally yield. You can't fight it. That's why the Spirit of God forcefully commands Run, And that's exactly what Joseph did. He ran out into the street and Potiphar's wife was left standing there, again rejected with his garment in her hands. And now Potiphar's wife was enraged. William Congreve's familiar words, words turned to reality in Joseph's life. He, he wrote this, Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Every ounce of Mrs. Potiphar's lust turned to fury. Having lusted after him, she now despised him, which resulted in a trumped-up accusation of rape. Verse 13, And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us, talking about Potiphar, he's, you notice here, she's putting the blame somewhere else. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to, in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. I'm sure she did, but it wasn't out of fear. It was out of rage. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So now this scorned woman wanted only revenge. If she cannot have him, she will, she will now strike out against him to do irreparable harm against him. And she, she instantly turns from the aggressor to the victim. Loud in her protest against the outrage. This, in my, in my humble opinion, is the first account of cancel culture. Uh, we live in a culture of victimhood in which individuals and groups display high sensitivity to, the, to, the, to, the, to every slight, even a perceived slight. And they have a tendency to handle conflicts through complaints to third parties. They don't actually deal with it. They, they go somewhere else, tell everybody else about what's going on and get them on their side. And then they seek to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve assistance. Of course, there are situations in which people are real victims and need to experience justice, but that's not the case here. Well, listen, Joseph could not have been in a more precarious position. He, he is a foreigner. He is a slave. And now he has been accused of attempted rape. Potiphar's wife's wounded ego 
will now place Joseph's life, Joseph's life in danger at the hands of an enraged master and husband. To, to accomplish this, uh, she built a false case against Joseph using a piece of circumstantial evidence, a robe. His first robe had been forcibly taken off of him by his hate-inspired brothers. The second robe taken by a lust-driven woman. And her first action was to accuse Joseph before the other men in the household. And she made the issue as public as possible so that her husband cannot help but act if he's going to save face before his own household. That's the way cancel culture works. It's a pressure to, to show that you, you really care about these things. And so if, and if you don't do what needs to be done, then you're, 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 you, you lose face. But by bringing the issue before the rest of the servants, she effectively boxed her husband into a corner where he has no choice but to act against Joseph. Because even if he didn't believe her, how could he take the word of a Hebrew slave over that of his own wife? And then she accused him before her husband, verse 16. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, again, blaming it on him, uh, came in into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out the house. And as, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, Scripture tells us that, that Potiphar heard her story and that his, his anger burned. But what is interesting is that the text carefully avoids telling us with whom he was angry. We don't know if he was angry with Joseph or if he was angry with his wife. We do know he ordered Joseph to be incarcerated in the special prison reserved for the king's prisoners. And, and prisons, by the way, were very, they were very uncommon. They were, they were, it was rare uh, in, in their day, and most of the time prisoners uh, were put into prison. It was, a, it was a political uh, opponents and that sort of thing. But here's the interesting question. Why did Potiphar not just kill Joseph outright? I mean, Joseph lived or died at the hands of his master. He's his property. He can do whatever he wants with him. He's also the, 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 the head executioner. He's the chief butcher. He's the, the captain of the guard. He has the power to deal with this. He could, he could, he could just have him killed. So why was jo Joseph not just summarily executed? Well, it, I'll admit it is conjecture, but the fact that Potiphar did not have Joseph executed may indicate that he had suspicions about the truthfulness of his wife's story. Because he had seen Joseph. He had seen, never seen anything like this in his character. He looked at him, I believe, and he said, Joseph? In his mind. He's thinking, Joseph? How? No way. I know Joseph. I trust him with everything. And I think maybe he just was boxed into a corner. and He had to do something. But he wanted to give Joseph, who had been a huge asset to him, some benefit of the doubt. So, so instead of having him executed, he threw him into prison. He had no choice but to punish Joseph in some manner because that's the way his wife manipulated the situation. 
But he wanted to give him some benefit of the doubt, so the choice is prison and not death. That's what I believe. Joseph had done the right thing. Here's the crazy thing. Here's the part that's hard for us to swallow. He had done what was right. Now he's going to jail. I mean, if you're like me, after everything he's been through, you're reading the Bible story and you're like, surely God, now you, you should reward him now. He's been so faithful. But no, the whole training process that God was going to put him through wasn't done yet. Potiphar's wife had committed the crime, but Joseph was suffering for it. And the Apostle Peter warns us that this kind of suffering is like, likely to happen to Christians. 1 Peter 2.20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before, before God. To, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he, listen to this, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The supreme example of someone who suffered for doing right and what is right and good is the Lord Jesus himself. And the, the remarkable thing about this whole story with Joseph is that Joseph knew nothing of Jesus, and yet he behaved like him. You know, to be accused of something you did not do, it's a terrible experience. Everybody, anybody here ever been falsely accused of anything? You know, I, I, I have. I, I don't have time to tell you a story, but I remember one time I got, I got punished at my grandpa's house for going across the road when I didn't go across the road. Well, long story short, I'll, I'll have to tell you the whole story another time, but he, he basically tortured a confession out of my cousin. And, and, so, and so that was a whole different thing. But, but it's a terrible thing to be accused of something you didn't do. But I also want you to see that there is no indication that Joseph was given any opportunity to tell his side of the story. When we are wrongfully and deceitfully accused, the immediate temptation is to protest and to lash out. And that's why Peter draws the example of Jesus to our attention. When Jesus was falsely accused and he was abominably treated, he did not lash out, he did not return the insults, and he did not threaten. What he did do was that he kept quiet and he entrusted himself to, to, to God, the righteous judge. Similarly, Paul advises his fellow believers in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, Boy, this is really great, but this is really hard. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That is not easy advice to live by. When we are uh, falsely accused, when we are unjustly mistreated by someone, it can be a very, very hard struggle to get to the stage where we're prepared to let it go, and to entrust it to God in the confidence that He will deal with it fairly and justly in the end. Now, before we, we're done tonight, we, I can't leave this episode of Joseph's Lives without thinking about the other side of the question, and that is, what happens if we fail to do what Joseph did? What happens if we fall into temptation, which realism and experience can tell, tells all of us that that can happen, right? 
Well, the Bible has a great deal to say about it. What comes to my mind is again is the behavior of Israel's greatest king, David. We mentioned him, but the same story. Uh, you know, he, he, David saw from his palace roof a beautiful woman and summoned her to the palace where he slept with her. But Bathsheba was another man's wife, and when she became pregnant, David eventually arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed in battle. So guilty of adultery and deceit and murder, David was like the polar opposite of Joseph. Yet, God did not destroy David. But he sent the prophet Nathan to confront him with the devastating consequences of what he had done. Let me read it to you, 2 Samuel 12. Now, therefore, the sword, this is the consequences. This is prophet Nathan, the prophet Nathan, Nathan speaking to David, telling him what's going to happen because of his sin. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me, took the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. That happened with Absalom many years later. You did, in, did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, faced with this, confronted with this sin, David at once confessed his guilt. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, here he is, I have sinned against the Lord. He's repenting. He's taking ownership. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But, be, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now there are two major lessons to be learned from this. The first one is that God is rich in forgiveness for those who repent. David might have written Psalm 32 to express his experience of God's mercy at the time. He wrote this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So there's forgiveness. That's one of the things we learn is that God is rich in forgiveness when we repent. God forgave David. But here's the second lesson. God forgave David. But sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. In David's case, those consequences were irreversible and, and wrought havoc for his family for many years. And listen, it is a serious mistake to think that forgiveness removes every consequence of sin. Now, now be clear, God's forgiveness removes, removes the spiritual consequences of sin. That is death, separation from God. Forgiveness removes that. I, I'm, I, I'm forgiven. I'm put at one with God. But forgiveness does not necessarily remove the natural consequences of our actions. For example, if I get drunk behind a wheel of a car and hit you and injure your spine, leaving you paraplegic, you know what? Maybe after some time with God's grace and with my repentance, you might be prepared to forgive me. But you will, however still be paraplegic. There's a consequence. If a man murders someone, the family of the one who has been murdered may forgive the one who did the killing. I, I've seen that. You've seen that. We've seen it on the news. I've known people who forgave uh, someone who killed their child. However, the judicial system won't just dismiss the charges because the family forgave the murderer. Because there are still natural consequences to pay. 
The, the Christian who sins is called upon to re repent with the promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But we need to remember the consequences are another matter. They typically have to be lived with. Now, occasionally God will intervene in those. But you can't, you just can't count on that. Forgiveness does not automatically cancel consequences, natural consequences. It's important that we realize this. Because I think one of the reasons it's important to realize that is because sometimes people get involved in what has been called presumptuous sin. You know what I mean by that? That's where they say, well, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and do it, and then I'll just ask God to forgive me later. You're presuming that God will forgive you when you intentionally decided to do it. Well, I'm not saying that he won't forgive you, forgive you, but I am saying that even if he does forgive you, there's going to be some consequences. It's going to lead to some other things in your life. Um, so anyway, the topic of forgiveness will figure very prominently in Joseph's story later on, but it will, however, not be a question of Joseph seeking forgiveness, but of Joseph doing the forgiving. In the meantime, we'll get back to where we left Joseph in the prison cell in Egypt next week. So why don't you bow your head and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the, the story of Joseph. We thank you for his life. We thank you for what we can learn. And Lord, as we deal with temptation, help us to learn from Joseph that we don't play with it. We don't reason with it. We, we refuse. We stand strong in your spirit. And we, we, we run away from it. We flee from it. But God, we just don't play with it. And Lord, if there's those times in our lives when we have yielded to that temptation and, in, and sin has, is born in our life, I pray, God, you remind us, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray, God, that in Jesus' name, you'd help us to do, to, to do that, to make things right, to keep things clear between us and you. And God, I pray you'd help us to remember to, that maybe it will help us pause a little moment longer to remember that even when we find forgiveness, there's often natural consequences that we're going to have to deal with. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to stand firm the way Joseph did and to call upon you to run if we need to, to separate ourselves, to do whatever we have to do. Because, Lord, you promised that you will make a way of escape for us with every temptation. We thank you for your help in all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.